Thank you for tuning into the Radicards podcast on Radicards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greeno, and today we have Ryan Daly. Joining us, we're going to be talking about uh, Japanese All-Star Game. Actually, All-Star Series. So it's mm-hmm. MLB All-Stars versus Samurai Japan. Mm-hmm. And we'll be talking about some listings on eBay. And we're going to close it out with a conversation about card shows. So uh, to set things off here, uh, Ryan was, I guess, recently at a CVS, and he... Uh, Bumped into Giancarlo Stanton. Ryan, you want to talk about that? Yes. Uh, legendary CVS, obviously, we all know and love. Um, this was a couple weeks ago, right around when the playoffs were getting started uh, started off. And Stanton's team was obviously not in the mix um, at that time. And he's from L.A. recently, This or recently, originally, um, and... This was a CVS in West Hollywood area, um, and that guy is gigantic. He's a beast of a man, and I didn't say anything to him. I, I could have said um, something because I actually – his half-brother or step-brother was my TA in college for a couple classes. <laughs> really? And this was back in like 2010 when Stanton, um, I believe – had either made his debut or was just about to make his debut. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wasn't quite the household name yet. He was still Mike Stanton back then. Right. But anyways, I could have walked up to Giancarlo and said like, Oh, Hey, how's your brother doing? You know? And actually had like a real uh, conversation with him instead right. of just saying, Oh, Hey, I'm such a big fan. Can you sign my shirt? You know, <laughs> but uh, he was with some friends and it was like a week, uh, week night. So I'm sure he was just trying to, lay low so i let him do his thing but it was fun to watch him sort of dominate that cvs and as i was checking out and leaving i told the cashier i was like do you know who Giancarlo stanton is the right fielder for the yankees and she said nope and i said well he's he's right over there and she could not care less so (laughs) (laughs) it was exciting for me but i don't think anybody else in the store thought anything of him except that guy's super tall so i mean there's you know there's subcultures for so many different things and mm-hmm. people who are going to be fans in one culture aren't going to care less about something from another culture. I mean, I, you see this all over the board with, you know, jocks and preps between nerds and geeks and metalheads. I mean, you're going to see like all the different groups just focusing in on their own areas and just not, not caring or picking on the other groups. Typically that happens like in high school and then you grow out of that and you have respect for all the different groups as you get older. You just like kind of understand that there's value everywhere. Mm-hmm. But um, it's funny. You told the cashier that there's like a multimillionaire yeah. standing right over there and they're like, eh, who cares? Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> yep. So that was fun. Just another, um, another thing to add to my odd celebrity sightings in LA. There you go. Uh, yeah. If I can recall correctly, <laughs> Many years ago, I want to say like 92, uh, we were on a plane ride, my family and I. I think I think this was when we were flying out to Hawaii uh, back in 92. On our plane was Ozzy Osbourne, and, and I think, I don't know if he had his band or his family with him, but I remember Ozzy Osbourne was on the same plane we were on, but I was too young to like really conceptualize the significance of it. I just knew he was a rock star. You know, wow. my my brother, my older brother was a bigger fan. You know, I never really grew up listening to Ozzy Osbourne. It's sort of like not really my style, but um, I thought that was like kind of cool. That was, I think, my one of my first interactions. I didn't talk to him or bump into him. I just, I guess he was sitting a few 
seats up to the left, you know, against the window or something, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> stuff happens, you know, and I was, I was quite a bit younger at the time. Oh, and 92 at the, on that trip was when we, my mom bought a Mickey Mantle baseball, signed baseball uh, for $75 in Hawaii. I still have it. It's actually in my office here. So what a great time to be buying Mickey Mantle yeah, stuff. 75 bucks <laughs> back then. I guess he was yeah. signing so much back then that he he was making almost more money going to shows and signing autographs than he made playing baseball. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Kind of amazing, actually. Uh, Ryan, you want to introduce us on this next point here? Well, actually, this first point, really, the Japanese All-Star Series. Yeah, so this is kind of a cool tradition, and it's uh, a select group of MLB All-Stars from this year, so not all of them, but a nice chunk of them went to Japan to play uh, Samurai Japan, which is like the national baseball team, sort of like USA Baseball. It'd be the team that Japan would send to um, the Olympics. Oh, okay. So in theory, the best of the best, you know, from the Japanese professional league. Sure. And they are playing our all-stars, and most of the players that went over are younger, um, the exciting rookies like Acuna and Juan Soto. Uh, I think Scott Kingery's over there. Mm. Um, so, you know, not like the bona fide superstars, but still a solid group of uh, uh, MLB players are over there. And it's I think it's a six-game series. Uh, technically, it's, you know, exhibition, um, just sort of a, tr a tradition, like a diplomatic thing, I guess, between the two, uh, two countries. Um, but you can stream it and watch these games if you're interested. Um, and as you know, a lot of the cream of the crop from Japan oftentimes end up in uh, America playing mm -hmm. baseball. So it might be kind of a cool opportunity to see some future talent that you might see on one of your teams. Um, there, I know there's a really popular Japanese pitcher. I, I'm blanking on his name right now, probably because it's a super complicated name, but he's sort of like the next um, potential um, Japanese player to come over. Cool. And so that'd be sort of fun to watch him. I'm sure he's using this as an opportunity to show off his stuff to, to the MLB players. Sure. Um, so if you're, I think the only really action right now, if you want to watch live professional baseball is like the Arizona fall league, which is like a, an all-star league for minor leaguers. Mm -hmm. And then there's this series in Japan. So keep an eye on it. There's, there's been a few little highlights I've, I've seen, I've seen online. Um, and it's just sort of a fun time to watch. Yeah, you know, I think it's a, it's a, those are good things to touch upon because there's so much talent coming out of that part of the world. And they're, I know Japan, they have a large baseball culture over there. And so it's nice to see that kind of get that kind of exposure uh, from mm -hmm. both sides of the world. And so um, I think it's great. I mean, I, I look forward to seeing what else, who else comes out of that, that area of the world and, and plays for national teams here in the, in the western side of the world. So mm -hmm. it's um to be exciting to see what what comes what comes of it. And I'm always still rooting for guys that we we've picked up along the way over the last decade or so. You know, I still root for guys like Yu Darvish and uh Masahiro Tanaka um and heck Shohei Otani. I mean there's 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 just talent in Japan and 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 it's 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 cool that we get to develop them here as well. So yeah, get 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 a, get a chance to sort of um review who's has potential um, mm -hmm. there to, you know, maybe we'll see them in future Bowman products. 
Yeah, and I, I recently um, the way that MLB teams can acquire Japanese players has changed, and that's why Otani is he's not over here on a huge contract like you Darvish and Tanaka are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's made the MLB management sort of more open to bringing over these players because you Darvish costs so much money just to even get into the country. I mean, same with Tanaka. I mean, those teams paid through the nose for those guys. Um, so now it's a little more reasonable. I think you can, you give the Japanese team a lot of money, mm-hmm. a certain amount of money, but you don't have to really give the player like a huge contract. So I think we might be seeing some more Japanese players coming over because, because of that. That'll be helpful. Um, I know that the uh, Daisuke Matsuzaki, Matsuzaka. I think oh yeah, that his, was his, one. yeah, that was a that was one of the bigger like um, contractual um, hurdles that we had to overcome to bring him to Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that it wasn't expensive just to talk to him. That was yeah. a cost in and of itself. I remember that being probably the the first one I heard about that was you know uh, that there was. Uh, significant for obviously news, but just in the sense of how much it costs just to do the very minor things of just getting in touch with the person. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's nice to know that those, those restrictions might be, um, uh, made more lenient in the future so that, um, connections can be made in an easier, maybe more affordable way. Yes. And I think the way they structured it is the team pays the MLB team pays whatever Japanese team you're dealing with. Yeah. Um, but that number, so if you give them 20 million bucks, that 20 million doesn't go towards your payroll. So you don't have to worry about the luxury tax, um, and having a huge payroll if you're going to spend $20 million on a player. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's another key thing because you're able to add a guy like Shohei Otani and not worry about your overall payroll for your team and hitting the luxury tax and, you know, that can sort of add extra stress um, when you're bringing over a player that's kind of not tested in America. Sure. So, yeah. Cool, man. Uh, I'm glad we got to talk about that. That's a nice little add-in introduction. Uh, moving on, the bulk of the, our podcast today, we're going to be talking about some auctions that either have hit eBay, have sold, or prices have been reduced, or what have you. So let's get right into it here. Uh, if you've been collecting for, gosh, I guess any amount of time really you've probably seen some pwcc listings over the course of your ebay searches um, i've been following them for many many years and just have kind of watched them grow as a company and it's been really cool to see that progress they're always listing really nice things um, <clears throat> you know as a frank thomas collector and just general passionate baseball card collector myself um, i've been looking for two cards in this particular set, 1996 Select Certified Mirror Golds for my Frank Thomas collection because he's, he's in a set twice. And I blogged about this set uh, a couple of years back and I may have made it, you know, <laughs> made myself, set myself up to pay more money when something does surface because my blog post may have made the rounds and people <laughs> Google search it and then find out that I have like a list of recorded sales um, showcasing, you know, what's how much these these cards are selling for, uh, and then I, t- I I boast about how important the set is and how rare it is, etc. I mean, I do that because I think it's important for knowledge. 
even though I don't have the two cards. Some might argue that doing that before you have the two cards might be a, a bad decision because it just makes you pay more when the cards do surface. But, you know, as excited as I am about baseball cards, I just wanted to blog about that set. So I did. And um, card number one, which is Frank Thomas in the set, uh, one gentleman had an example and sent me a message through my blog from that blog post and saying, hey, I've got this card. How about this number? And I'm like, gosh, I wish I could afford that number. And then I was thinking, like, maybe I, maybe I published that blog post too soon because now I'm like stuck in a situation I have to pay mm-hmm. huge dollar figures for the Frank Thomas card. And that was the first time I had seen that card listed, and it sold for like thirty five hundred, I think, at the time. This was wow. just last year. And then another gentleman who uh, had one listed his. And so that was the second time I had seen it that year. And so I didn't get that one either because it sold for around the same price. So card number mm-hmm. one, I had seen now twice on the auction block. I'm like, okay, I'm, I can't, I didn't, you know, I didn't get that, that either of those times. So maybe I'll see it again. But Thomas is also in the, the, the subset at the end of the set called pastime power. He's card number 135. And I'd never seen that card. In fact, Back in 2014, Ryan, you might remember I created a Google Doc and put in like visual references of certain Frank Thomas cards I was after, and then I would like I think I shared you the doc, the share the document with you to like show you. I think yes. it was like 10 or 15 cards, and I because I didn't have an image of the mirror gold of card number 135, the pastime power, power Frank Thomas card. I basically toggled with like uh, my mirror blue and tried to change like the the hue saturation and make it made it look gold. It looked kind of crappy at the end of the day, but it was all I had. And I was like, I don't know if I'll ever see card one thirty five, so I gotta you know, have some reference of this thing. So going back to PWCC, they recently listed a block of mirror gold cards, uh, thirteen of them to be exact. And of the thirteen, they they have the entire run of uh, pastime power cards less the Ken Griffey Jr. Ken Griffey Jr. is card number 136. And uh, pastime powers go from 135 to 144. And all of those other cards are listed in this block. Really, really interesting stuff. And um, I have, you know, uh, just one of these things is like, gosh, I probably won't be able to participate in this auction because it's going to go for probably way more than I, I, I have allocated at this time to, to, to toward this type of a purchase. Mm-hmm. And so I'm prepping a blog post right now um, where I've got basically all the images and I'm going to have a recorded sales, you know, um, go to radicards.com and keep an eye out and just type mirror gold into the search bar and you'll find this at some point if not if not right now you'll see it at a later time it'll be there so definitely go check on that you can see all these and the recorded sale dates and the um the end prices and this sort of thing so my valuation of the thomas in this block is between three and four thousand dollars that's my evaluation it's a bgs 10 but because of its scarcity I honestly don't think it being graded any grade is going to have that much of an impact in final sale value because of how rare this card is. Mm-hmm. Now that's just the Thomas. There's like Nomo, Albert Bell, Cal Ripken, Mike Piazza, Greg Maddox. I mean, these are big stars at the time. Klesko and Chipper Jones, Mo Vaughn, 
Um, these are all these are all big superstars, and that's just pastime powers. They've also got in the, the actual set Tony Gwynn, Bernie Williams, Kyle Jr., and Chanho Park. Chanho Park I had not seen before, and so it's going to be nice to see kind of where these go uh, with when they when they close next week. So definitely keep an eye on the blog for this um, article. Look out for it. Go go search for it. Um, and, and, and have a look at uh, these end prizes. It's going to be interesting to see kind of where these go. So I just want to touch on this because this is such a significant time in the auction block to see all these at mm. once. And it's the first time I've ever seen a gold pastime power, Thomas. So, Yeah, big cards. Huge. Really big cards. Yeah. I'll be watching them move on. <laughs> right, yeah. We'll see where that goes. Yeah. I yeah the Vaughn I think will be very attainable somewhere between my valuations between eighty and one hundred and twenty five right in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, I know Maddox, Piazza, Ripken, Chipper, Nomo, those are all going to be huge end prices. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see kind of where this all plays out. But really cool stuff. These are all graded by BGS too. So that's that's kind of a they're all between nines and ten nines and tens. Uh, so it'll be fun to see kind of where this this ends up. I'm I'm really excited to to, to watch these auctions, but definitely want to touch on that because uh, that's a very significant run of cards. Thirteen of these things is just just a, a monster run. Yeah, it's super impressive that it seemingly came from one collection. So yeah, I can't very, imagine them getting impressive. all these from different vendors all for one. No, no. Just yeah. the the statistical probability of that is very low. And and having this run of them, all the pastimes, less the Griffey. I mean, it's just all the the factors play in to lead me to believe that this came from one consigner or consignee. Um, so there you have it. Uh, a run of thirteen different '96 Select Certified Mirror Gold baseball cards have been listed by PWCC Auctions. Definitely go check those out. Uh, Frank Thomas is right now leading the pack at seven, just above seventeen hundred bucks, and Ripken trailing behind it, just o- above eleven hundred. So, moving on, um, you might remember in a previous podcast, Ryan, we talked about Shohei Otani, two thousand eighteen Bowman Paper Platinum one of one. Mm-hmm. Well, the price on that card was now has now been reduced to thirteen thousand fifty, mm. and it's still sitting. So. I'm curious to see now that we're in the off season, you know, he's going to do TGA surgery and we may or may not see him in 19. I hope we do as a hitter, uh, where this could potentially go if we're listed auction style, you know, the spike in Otani stuff has sort of calmed a bit since the market has, you know, we're kind of looking at other news worthy items and things like that. Awards are now going to be handed out to certain players now that we're at the end of the, the end of the season or the season's over. So I really am curious if they listed this auction style, where it would end up, if it would even reach the four-figure mark. Yeah, I don't think so. The seller might get lucky if Otani wins Rookie of the Year and someone just goes nuts on Otani stuff on Mm -hmm. eBay. But even that spike, I don't think, would reach that kind of price. Um, So I I would just, if if you really want some cash, just list it auction style. It'll do well. It's just not going to do that well. Yeah, you think it, but you think it'll go to to a thousand? Mm. The plates haven't gone to a thousand. They've gotten like six hundred bucks. Yeah, you know. So I, I, but I know plates are kind of like they're one of ones. I get it, but there's there are four of them you have to chase. So it's like a one of one run you have to go after. 
and it gets always overwhelming for most of us like because a lot of us know that it, the, the, the chances of us getting a full run of plates is very low some of us do it uh but it's just very rare so a lot there's of no us, autograph right it's just yeah the paper is just a standard card no autograph yeah bgs9 uh big card i mean it's great great card i mean i i'd love to have it but i there's no no way i'd pay thirteen thousand dollars for it no no i'd pay like 800 bucks for it though <laughs> i'd hand I'd, I'd fork over 800 bucks for that you know i think that's that's probably about close to where I'd, what i'd pay for it i think so this is kind of interesting because it's still sitting has it, it's it's gone now unsold with a price reduction and it initially sold as an offer for 15 grand and now it's wow. sitting unsold for at a loss essentially so i i am you know i'm just kind of curious to see where where it goes so i just want to touch on that as a follow-up speaking of follow-ups uh the, the 1974 tops ken griffey senior rookie card in a psa 10 we discussed in a previous podcast it the the dimitri young collection one mm -hmm. sold for 1358 bucks so that was i mean sizable um and it is yeah somewhat comparable to that card in a 10 without the dimitri young collection pedigree on the actual flip mm -hmm. uh, i was kind of doing some research there's standard deviation between a couple hundred bucks but it's not it's not as big as i thought it was going to be but whatever the case significant sale and you know that's what is that 20 times more more than 20 times more than what a psa 9 sells for nine sell for between like 55 and 60 bucks so like, wow, really? Yeah. So you can get a nine for sixty, or you can get a ten for one thousand three hundred fifty bucks. It's just like Ooh. such a huge difference. Uh, I'd be happy with a nine. I don't need a ten. Something like that. I'm just, I'm give me a nine. I'm good. Yeah, I, I was surprised when I saw the ending price. I mean, Ken Griffey is obviously a a legend because of his son. Right. In his own right, he wasn't a fantastic player he spent a lot of time in the in the bigs mm. but uh i mean a, a 10 for any 1974 card i suppose is sort of special in its own right totally um, so um there's that and then the griffey family is represented so um and then three other people that i'm sure we've never heard of but uh yeah nines and tens that's big difference such a big difference <laughs> and it gets i mean that 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 difference just grows exponentially as you go further back you know i mean, I mean even nines and eights that it just as you know like the older it is the higher condition it is the more drastic difference there between one number to the next mm -hmm. you know and so yeah i mean that's it's really a solid sale super solid actually so i want to touch on that i think it was cool tonight uh, I was watching a 1999 Fleer Brilliance 24 karat gold Mark Grace. And, you know, it was at, I think, like 33 bucks in the last 10 seconds. And I was like, I'll just place a $45 bid. <laughs> 45 bucks. And then, like, there's that you submission, and then there's a lot of clockwork that happens. And then it's sorry you you were outbid at two hundred and fifty five dollars, and I was like, Ooh, wow, that's just missed it. That's yeah, just barely missed it. <laughs> uh, so that was a pretty solid, really solid end price for that card, and I archived it on my in my records for my entry for nineteen ninety nine Fleer Brilliance twenty four karat gold on the blog, 
Again, go to radicards.com if you want to see this record and type in um, type in uh, 24 karat gold baseball or 1999 Fleer Brilliance. Or whatever the case, yeah. it's actually coming in at so far right now in my records is the fifth most expensive sale of the records. And now I know these these cards do pretty well depending on player, but the top sale in my records is Chipper Jones at six twenty five. Mm-hmm. And right now the lowest is thirty five bucks for Tino Martinez. Now this is just twenty top sales. I don't record more than twenty, and they're the highest ones. So if like you know one shuffles in, I kick out the bottom one so that it's just twenty all the time. So um, they they they're more affordable than ninety six select certified mirror golds we discussed earlier. Mm. Uh, they're still catching on to popularity, but to me, they're just as attractive in design as the 96 Select Certified Mirror Golds. They're, pretty, they're super cool. Super pretty cards. I, I paid um, about 215 for a Nomar uh, three four years ago. Yeah. But that was a PSA 9. Yeah. I, I, I assume this Grace was raw? Yes. Okay. So I, I don't really consider Nomar and Mark Grace to be be like in the same category of ball players sure uh, so i was a little surprised to see that they were the two ending prices were kind of close but i'm sure if that grace was was in an eight or a nine or obviously a 10 it would have amplified the price a lot i don't know uh, man i i honestly I, I i might have to disagree with you because something oh, like yeah. well because i look at this set as like is very popular with set builders mm. and player collectors and gotcha. and so I, I I know of one person that collects Mark Grace, just one. And everybody else, they build sets that that are after, that would be after this card. I can't think of another person, maybe a Cubs collector, but even then, I don't know any Cubs collectors that are this ardent with Cubs cards because there's literally infinite sl- supply of Cubs cards. Mm-hmm. So I I I part of me feels like this sale at this number was due to a set builder. Now, it might be the case that that one Grace collector, and I haven't looked at his collection, he might have needed this card, and he was the bidder and won. But there were 16 bids. So there were a lot of people going after this card. And it yeah, started out auction sure. style, just like you, you should, you know, if you want to sell something quickly. And so this card's selling for 255 outperformed out, uh, Roberto Alomar, uh, Vladimir Guerrero, Mike Piazza, you know, uh, all Hall of Famers, those three guys. Piazza sold for 109, Vlad 153, Alomar 250. So it's interesting to see that Grace sold for that much. So it leads me to believe that the card is rarely surfaces for one, and two, it either went to a set builder or a player collector. I can't think of anybody else, but I only I feel like it went to a set builder because of the action involved, like 16 bids. That's that's pretty significant. Still affordable, I think 255 for the card is still very low for what it is and i think that as time progresses this these kinds of sales will continue to slowly appreciate so i wanted to touch on that you have any comments no uh strong sale i hope i think i think we're both thinking of the same grace collector um he's yeah. got an amazing amazing collection so he i does. hope he was the one that, that got it um, he does i don't i he might already have one but who knows yeah i mean his collection is i mean i, I think it's I don't know any other Grace collectors, so I can't compare it to any other mm. anybody else's Grace collector. But uh, it's the best one I've seen. 
So mm -hmm. it's a really nice collection. So just wanted to touch on that because that was kind of a significant uh, sale this evening. Kind of fun to watch. And um, yeah, I just missed it with my $45 bid. Just barely <laughs> missed it. Uh, moving on, let's talk about card shows for a minute. Ryan, you and I have attended a lot of card shows, both together and on our own. Can you think of some aspects of a card show that make you want to attend the card show? Mm, good lighting. Nice. Yeah. It's a cafeteria. <laughs> Good lighting. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I always like it when dealers come with a wide variety from modern to vintage, sort of everything in between. Um, the last show I went to, there was one dealer who only had vintage game used cards of a, a certain player. And it was such a niche thing. And the booth was not very well attended. I was there for a couple hours and I didn't see anybody over there. Um, so I, I just like it when they have a, a nice variety, cheap stuff, expensive stuff, mm -hmm. um, you know, brand new products, old products. Um, it's it just sort of got to cover the whole gamut as from a collector's point of view. Yeah. I mean, variety is uh, so important. But variety in the dark sucks, right? So you're like, got to have good lighting and variety, right? Absolutely. <laughs> number one, number two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so variety is really important. I, I see. Okay, so here's the thing with me. Variety is important, but only it's, it's, it's only as good as the price points available to you at the time. So you can have like amazing variety, but if everything's like 10 times market value, I'm not going to have a very good time at this card show. Mm -hmm. I might have a good time blogging about stuff I find, but... I won't probably won't bring anything home. So perfect example, maybe not the best example. So it's not actually the perfect example, but when I went to the long beach expo that first time I couldn't afford anything I saw because it was all high end auction houses. I didn't bring $80,000 to spend on a Joe Jackson card. <laughs> okay. So I brought like a hundred bucks and then I couldn't find anything in my price range. So I went home empty handed. This happened the first couple of times I went to this show. So I'm not saying that, that, the prices were too high outside of market par. They were right at market. It's just my budget wasn't at market. So mm -hmm. I couldn't afford anything. So I, I will say this. Variety is important, but so is price availability. Like like being able to buy something at, at you know, feeling like you got a bargain or you got a good deal or you found something for a good price. Like, hey, I got this Tony Gwynn rookie for five bucks. Yes. You know, I, I didn't get, you know, it wasn't for 15 and the guy would, he's like, uh, you can do $14 on like, sorry, I can get the next booth for five. If there was another mm -hmm. booth that was selling it for five, because it's pretty common. So I think price points is really important and, um, variety and, and table, like not just two dealers. I, I want to see like 20, 30 dealers. You and I used to go to Frank's and that was like so cool because there were just rows of dealers. And I just thought that was so much fun every weekend. And that to me is like sort of ideal because it's just big, almost like celebration of card sports card, you know, shoppers and dealers. And that was just, that to me was very ideal, you know, shuffling around to different booths and, you know, paying a guy here and there and bringing home and kind of spreading it all out, see what you got and going through it. I just, that to me is, it's really important. I really get a, a good time out of that. So. Yeah. The, um, I went to the Long Beach Expo earlier this summer, and I went on the last day. It, I think it was like a Thursday through Saturday kind of show. Yeah. And um, 
I ended up getting some some nice prices just because it's the last day. Some of these dealers were out from like Arizona and Las Vegas, um, so they made a significant financial and time investment to get out there. Yeah, and you know it's the last day. You're looking around. You still have a lot of stuff in your booth. Let's start start making some deals. And uh, you're there to sell is the thing. So exactly. Like the smart dealers will do that. And I really appreciate it. And, and I've experienced that most of the dealers I've run into are like that. But every now and then, and I say most because it's not all. Every now and then you run into one guy who's like doesn't want to sell his stuff at the end. He wants to take it home. I think that people, people should understand they're there to sell. They're there to sell to their audience. You know, your customers. That's really important. So um, a show experience is, is really important when, when you find when dealers are just very willing to work with you on things. I mean, realistically, you don't want to like, obviously you want to make them money and make, make it sense to both of us. You're not going to underball the dealer, mm -hmm. you know? And so I really appreciate it when guys, they, they have great bargain bins and they're willing to work with you on, on price that makes sense to both of you. And you know, they're there to sell. They're not there to show off. They're there to sell their collections or sell their inventory. And that's just really important to me. There have been several times at Frank's where, I don't know if you've run into this, where you'll pull a card out of some guy's showcase that's a total, like, nothing card, and he wants five bucks for it, and you offer a dollar. He's like, no, I'll take five. I'm like, well, you can just have it back because this Mike Lansing card's not going to sell for any more than one dollar, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I I luckily had a good experience last time in Long Beach. Um, uh, there was one card in particular I offered 20 bucks for. I think they were asking, like, 30 or 40 and the guy goes, oh, I don't know. I could get that price all day long on eBay. And I said, all right, well, you can go sell on eBay if you want. Or I have 20 bucks in my wallet right now. Yeah, and no eBay fees and no PayPal fees. No eBay fees. <laughs> it's just straight up cash. And, I mean, obviously you could sit at home all day and list a huge collection on eBay, but it's such a pain. Um, and you start dealing with weird buyers on the internet and yet shipping and all these things that i don't mind just... that but if that guy said look i can get 25 on ebay and you offered 20 that would make sense but if he says i can get 20 on ebay i was like dude yeah but you, you you're actually losing money because of the fees i'm yeah. right here gonna give you the entire amount of 20 dollars. so tech just look at me as a guy on ebay but without the fees right now you know but i so that that's that doesn't it's weird that someone would say like yeah you offer that amount and that's the guy's like i can get that same amount on ebay i was like okay well then take a loss on eBay, <laughs> you know, yeah, go to eBay then. So that's <laughs> really, but, weird. you know, it's, it was one of those like last day of the show sort of situations where they just said, fine, you know, it's just get rid of it. Yeah. I don't want to have to pile all this stuff back in my car at the end of the day. So, right. I mean, I know that, uh, Beckett, they sell their big annual books at a discount the last day. They've done that before. I don't know if that's a consistent thing, but it's nice to know that you can get a, an annual an almanac for, you know, a fraction of the normal, cost of those books are really handy references to have just for information mm -hmm. so um totally get that again show experience is important especially if you're traveling and like you expect to get taken care of um and when you see something you want uh there's there's always those sellers that try to get twice market value at big shows because that's the place where people are spending money and they know that there's a lot of that happening i kind of mm -hmm. wish that it wasn't like that but you can always like kind of weave your way into finding guys that are in there just to sell stuff and they have great bargain bins they have great inventory they have great personalities great customer service these are the kinds of people i like to deal with and i go back mm -hmm. again and again and again and so really happy about that but i just want to touch on that because i mean we could just talk an entire podcast on this 
and maybe we'll do that at some point down the line. But um, I think it's a good thing to think about when you go to a show, like what are the most important things about the show to you as a buyer, as a prospective buyer? Yeah. And one of the sort of side goals of mine at, at shows is a, a, a networking opportunity. Sure. Um, I try and get a business card from anybody I buy from. Um, even if I don't buy from them, if I, if I talk to them for a little while and they have a, a nice collection, I'll get a card from them. Even there, if they're like a hobby shop out in Arizona, you know, maybe I'm in Arizona next year. Sure. And, um, I now have this relationship with this guy and I can go in and, you know, talk prices with him if he's got stuff that I want. Absolutely. So that's always a good thing to have. I, I have in my collection, I have a whole section full of business cards, um, which I know is kind of old school, but some of these people don't have a robust online presence where totally. you can just go check out their collection. You know, they don't have a COMC account or a, a nice eBay account where you can just go do everything online. Right. Um, there is some sort of old school aspect to some of these sellers. So, um, take the business card. If there's a card that you want, um, you know, maybe in a year, they might change their, their mind a little bit on the price. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nice. I did the same thing. I have stacks of business cards. I mean, I I'd like to digitize them all just because I, I try to minimize the amount of clutter I have, but I appreciate that. I, I do the same thing. I carry with me business cards and I kind of trade and like, Hey, you know, contact me if you've got any of these cards or if you've got any Heidi and Frank Thomas or, you know, anything from the set, et cetera. And it's nice to build those connections. I mean, it's, we're people, you know, we're, we're meant to socialize and talk and get to know one another. And so it's, um, mm -hmm. it's a really valuable interaction and dialogue that we have with these dealers and other buyers too. I've met so many cool other collectors at these shows that, not you know not just i mean just so many people in the industry between buyers auction house owners um just you know mom and pop shop guys dealers just people that are just there to sell and it's just fun to get to know kind of what they're interested in what 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 they're what excites them what they collect etc if they collect anything um so that's just uh it's just a good awesome opportunity to, when it's really well attended i i like that stuff a lot so mm -hmm. I want to touch on that. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about that at least for a little while. Uh, that concludes this podcast. Ron, do you have any final thoughts? I think we covered everything, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for tuning into the Radicards Cards podcast and radicards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greeno. And until next time, enjoy collecting. If you like this content, please subscribe. Thank you. Enjoy collecting.